Our sermon text this morning is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verses 8 through chapter 6, verse 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and yet, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God." For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So Jennifer O'Neill, in her book, The Golden Ghetto, uh, it's called A Golden Ghetto, The Psychology of Affluence. And in her book, uh, she writes about the strange and the difficult and what she would say is often unhealthy relationship we have with wealth, with money. Uh, she uses in the term, she uses in the book a term called affluenza, you probably be, 
probably heard it before, affluenza. It, it's obviously a parody on influenza. When you're sick, you have the flu, fevers, colds. It, it, it describes an unhealthy relationship that our body has. It's sick. Well, affluenza is describing the unhealthy relationship we have with, with riches. So let me ask you, how healthy do you feel that your relationship is with money, with riches, with wealth? I mean, are, are, you, are you satisfied, for example? Are you content? And with your car, with your job, with your house, with the vacations you take? J.D. Rockefeller once was asked, how much is enough? And the often quoted response was, just a little bit more. Do you need just a little bit more <clears throat> to be satisfied? Would you consider yourself satisfied or unsatisfied? Are you striving or are you resting? Well, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes wants to deal with this issue, the preacher, because last week we just talked in chapter 5 on, on the meaning of life is found in the worship of God. You know, fearing God rightly. We want to worship him rightly. In that is the meaning of life. And yet here we make this major pivot to money. Why? Well, because the worship of money is probably one of the greatest threats to the worship of God. Now, I know you probably don't think, well, I don't worship money. Well, if we look at worship in a real narrow sense, you know, kind of the bow down before a statue kind of worship, well, you're right. But if we broaden the idea of worship a little bit to love, devotion, trust, reliance, you know, kind of thinking about all the time, worried about, you know what, then maybe, maybe we are a little bit more tempted to envy, to greed, to want just a little bit more. You know, the Christian isn't immune to greed. And the forgiven sinner is still tempted by something nicer, bigger, prettier, newer. Well, what the, what the preacher wants to explain to us is simply this, uh, that there's really two roads before us. Uh, the one is this way of pursuing wealth, finding meaning and value in wealth. And uh, greed, love of money. And he says this is the foolish way. The other way is to find your delight in God. Now, <clears throat> what he's going to do in, in that long passage we read is he's just going to pound in us the warnings about th these dangers of greed. I mean, like a carpenter just driving a nail, just putting blow upon blow on the nail to drive it in the board. He's going to give us five warnings to avoid this danger of loving and trusting in wealth. And, and then he's going to give us the wise way, which was to find delight in the gifts that God has given to us. It's really a two-part sermon. There's five warnings to avoid the dangers of greed, and we'll pick those out in the text that was read. And then we'll look at that way that leads to joy and happiness and satisfaction regardless of your station in life. So it's really not much different than what Jesus did. When Jesus preached in Matthew 6, he said you can't serve two masters. He said you're going to love the one and hate the other. You're going to despise the one, be devoted to the other. He said you can't serve God in money. That, he's taking it right out of this book. There's two roads before us. So let's look at the dangers of greed. And we'll just march right on down these warnings. So, so the first warning I would give you, the first warning is simply this. That the love of money is foolish because it ends up oppressing people. It oppresses the weak. It oppresses the vulnerable. Look with me at 8 and 9. 
In 8 and 9, he says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Let me explain this to you. So you see it's a contrast, right? So he says, in this province, in this county, in this country, you always see, in some measure, the oppression of the weak and the vulnerable to profit those who have authority, who have power. Now, now he's probably not speaking about an individual citizen here, you know, kind of swindling someone else, but he's probably speaking about government, perhaps, or big bureaucracy, where they have one official who has authority and then there's somebody over him and somebody over him <clears throat> he's kind of speaking to systemic greed or to this kind of structural evil you've seen this before you know you have to pay off the customs guy the licensing guy he gets his take and they're all watching each other they all keep an eye to make sure everybody's towing the line everybody's profiting from the weak and the vulnerable nobody's watching the vulnerable nobody's watching the weak nobody's caring for them it's everybody's trying to line their own pockets because of the positions that they're in. Now, you know, when Karen and I were in Europe, I used to go into communist countries a number of times, and you'd always see the disparity clear between those who had Western money and Western goods, and they could shop at Western stores. It was there. You just had to have the right authority, and you had to be in the right rung on the ladder to get there. The rest of the folks just had to live very, very just kind of bland lives, you know, enjoying what communism produced. If you ever wonder what that is, just think Trabant. Trabant was their car that they made. There, it was like the, the Volkswagen to the Germans was the Trabant to the communists. It was an absolute junker. They had to live at the lower levels of economic joy, whereas the others always got the, you know, the, the Western goods with their Western money. But not just that. You go to big business here. You know, capitalism has a dark side. And you think of Enron. So Enron collapses. Why? Well, because of the greed at the top. And what happens? The pensioners and the people that invested their money, they lost it. Uh, so what he's saying here is that, is that greed, the love of money, will oppress people. Now notice the contrast. He says, at, in verse 9, he says, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. What he's saying here is, is that when a king rules well, and fields are being cultivated, and crops are being grown. <clears throat> Even the owners of those fields, they'll plow the field, but the law says you only plow one time. You don't go back and plow. But you may have missed stuff, so you want to go back. He says, no, you don't go back. Why? Well, because the sojourner and the poor and the weak, they get to go through the fields after they've been harvested. Uh, the law said don't trim or don't harvest the corners of your property. Why? So that the weak and the vulnerable might have something to gain. In other words, God was giving protection for the weak and the poor so that greed would not make them, make them weaker and make them vulnerable. Uh, so so you, you have this, this love of money is going to affect people. What is the takeaway for us? I mean, how, how do you, you don't plow fields, you don't, you're not part of some systemic evil and greed, perhaps? Well, it, it ought to remind us that greed isn't isolated. It has collateral. It, it, spends, it sends its shrapnel out. People are wounded by our greed, by our covetousness, uh, by our failure to be generous with what we have. People that need our help go without. 
there is, there is an effect. There is hurt. Those who need go without. And, and also, even if you're here, not even as a Christian, you know, it would remind us of the need for justice. You know, we do, you know, to think of God as some old man who's just going to give everybody a big group hug, it, it, it doesn't serve the people who have suffered. You know, the people who have suffered under the systemic evil, the structural greed, it doesn't serve them. You know, there is something in us that we do want justice brought. We, we want reconciliation for them. So, so there is a place for a God of judgment to bring that about. So, so, so the first warning, he says, is a love of money can lead to the wounding of those who are weak. But not just that, a second reason he gives us. The love of money is foolish because it won't satisfy you. You can gain all you want and it will not satisfy you. Look with me at 10 and 11. He who loves money will not be satisfied. He will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? Now, this is an interesting it's clear that as your income goes up, as your wealth increases, so do your desires and cravings. And they kind of go up together. Uh, so, so there is no increase in satisfaction. It's like getting on a treadmill. It's a hamster on a wheel. You know, it's a chasing after the wind. Think about it in your own life. Uh, so, so have you not once said in the history of work, you know, say, well, if I just get that raise, if I get that bump, if I get that bonus, if I get that... That, that next level job up, then we'll be in decent shape. Now, look back over the history of your work career. Go back 5, 10, 20 years. I mean, how many raises, how many bumps, how many increases have you had? Has it ever satisfied you? Uh, have you ever said, yes, I have enough? This is why I said it's vanity. It's, absolutely, it's meaningless. We, because every time it goes up, so do our, so do our desires. So do our wants. And now, not, not only does, you know, so what ends up happening is you become fuller and fuller and fuller, and yet you feel emptier and emptier and emptier. And not just that, but the increases in wealth can be a burden. Notice he says about the mouths you have to feed. You know, you, you make some money, and, and you like that, so you work harder to make more money. And it usually brings you to the office on Saturday. I can't cut the grass. I've got to hire a gardener. He'll cut the grass. And then you start making even more money and then you need to get a tax accountant because, you know, you're starting to pay too many taxes and you've got to kind of shield some of the income. You've got to pay him. And then your estate begins to grow, so you've got to protect that, so you've got to get a lawyer and you've got to pay him. And all of a sudden you begin to acquire a lot of mouths that you're feeding. But his point is that you just won't be satisfied. You know, th there's something called um, <clears throat> a hedonic treadmill. David Naylor pointed me to this. Very fascinating, hedonic treadmill. Psychologists have come up and found by just observing the human tendency that, that people's happiness always reaches this relative stable level. So it, it doesn't matter the increases that you gain, that as your income and as your wealth and opportunities increase, so do your desires and cravings for that increase. So, so it, they kind of... They kind of go up together and they, and they crest at some stable level of happiness. In fact, they did this survey between those who had been given great wealth and those who had encountered great problems. Like uh, some even, they, they um, had a survey of paraplegics. And, and they found that the, relatively the relative level of happiness was the same over time. So he's saying that the increase 
in wealth and opportunities and money actually didn't increase happiness at all. Not at all. Now, of course, Augustine, about 1800 years, said the same thing. He said, desire has no rest. It's infinite in itself, endless as one calls it. It's a perpetual rack or a horse mill. Just think that horse turning, grinding grain. And you know, advertising doesn't help us here. Advertising just keeps sowing seeds if you need more. You're not satisfied? Try this. You're not satisfied? Try this. Malcolm Muggeridge, of course, a journalist from, from Great Britain, said history will see advertising as one of the real evils of our time. It's a simple stimulation of people constantly to want this and to want that. Facebook can do the same thing. Here's my vacation. Here's the family gatherings. Here's what I've got over here. Here's my family. And it creates this sense of I'm never satisfied. He's warning us. The love of money and the increase in wealth will not scratch the itch that you have. Okay, the third warning he gives. And you see this in 12. It leads to a disquiet life. In 12 he says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So the, the scene is this. The scene is that the man who goes out in the field and he works, and he's toiling under the sun, and he's planting, he's harvesting. Whatever he's doing, he's working hard all day long. He comes home after a hard day. The sun sets, he sits down, he eats. It may be a little, it may be a lot. It doesn't matter. He bathes and he gets in bed, and there's no better sleep than that. And any of us who have done any hard work for a full day, you know what that feels like. There's a contentment and a rest after hard labor that the bed provides. It's a sweet bed to sleep in. But he says the rich, they're not out working. They're not out laboring. They're just enjoying. They're eating delicacies. Their stomach is getting full. They're the ones that have insomnia. They're worried about this or that. One author called it the indigestion of materialism. There's this sense of struggle that they don't sleep as well. Derek Kidner is an Old Testament professor. He said, all of our modern exercise machines and health clubs testify to one of the human absurdities that we pour out money and effort just to undo the damage of money and ease. You know, because we're just, we're caught up with worries and we're eating so much, the, the digestive system doesn't let us sleep. There's a warning for us there. Okay, the fourth warning of, against uh, the love of money is, is in its transitoriness, in, its, in, in the shortness that we hold on to money, in the fact that there's no guarantees with it. Look in 13 and 14 with me. He says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. What he's saying here is he's speaking about the man. It wasn't a quick rich scheme. He worked hard. He toiled all of his life. He built up wealth, more and more wealth. And he kept it close to himself. He kept it safe. He didn't share it. He didn't pour it out to anybody. He kept it close, thinking one day I'll need it. One day I'll need it. One day I'll need it. Well, then the day comes. It's a bad venture. We don't know what the bad venture is. Maybe it's a war. Maybe it's a downturn in the economy. Uh, maybe it's a, a bankruptcy, failure of the banks. But, but it's gone. He loses it all. And not only does he, he fail to enjoy his wealth, he's lost it, and he's lost the, the responsibility that he has to share with those of his own family. He's got nothing to give. You see this all the time. And these athletes come out of college, they get these big contracts, and they make millions, or an entertainer, they make millions, and they're 
in their careers, and how do they end up in life? A lot of them end up in paupers. I took the kids when they were younger to this place called Castle in the Clouds. It was a, a beautiful house. I mean, just an incredibly beautiful house on, on a New Hampshire mountain that looked over the, the, the lower hills around it, and it had every modern convenience. It was built in the earliest 20th century, and, and he just made, I don't even forget what he made it on, but he made a ton of it, a ton of it. You couldn't burn it all in five lifetimes. So he goes ahead and invests it all into the Russian economy just a few years before the Bolshevik Revolution. He, all gone, he died a pauper. It goes that fast. He had enough that could have supported thousands of families. All gone, bad venture. It's, it's not worth it. Look at the fifth and final reason that he says to avoid this danger of, of loving money. This is that you can't take it with you. I know that's obvious, but I feel the need to repeat it. Look with me at 15 to 17. As it came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil, that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Now, you see, he's kind of wrapping up, at least in this section of the, of the passage, he's saying that, that to pursue wealth, and to find security or trust or reliance in riches, he says, you can't take it with you. And you notice in 17, it's kind of a summary passage. You know, th this idea that there's vexation, there's anger, there can be a bitterness. Wealth is a burden. It can be a burden. Who can you trust? Can you trust those to whom you give it to? Can you trust your advisors? You know, it's a burden. I'm always being taken advantage of. Someone's always trying to get a buck out of me. You know, th there's a certain degree of discomfort that, that the wealthy can have over managing their wealth. But at the end of the day, it's crazy to pursue wealth with all of your life because you can't take any with you. Naked you came, naked you go, or maybe a cheap suit, but, but you're not going with anything. Now, <clears throat> you'd think we'd know this, and I think intellectually we may grasp it, but I don't know that we fully do. You know, you think about the Egyptians. The Egyptians in their burial chambers, they would send the pharaoh off with gold and silver. Some even sent horses and servants. They wanted to get them prepared for the next life. You know, the only people that profited from that, just the tomb raiders, I mean, those that got in and stole all the stuff. Can you imagine? They must have been laughing their heads off. I guess it didn't go with them. So, I, I mean, think... We've got to remind ourselves uh, of, and, and you see this time and time again, that we think we can take it with us and we can't. So let me just ask you, you, you have these warnings, right? The, the warnings that, number one, it can oppress the weak. Our hoarding our money, our pursuing wealth and not sharing it, it oppresses the weak. It, um, uh, it, it leaves us unsatisfied. It brings us to disquieted lives. It, it isn't guaranteed no matter how much you have, it's not guaranteed to last you forever, and you can't take it with you. So there are five warnings that we hear. So do you think you struggle with envy? I mean, are you satisfied with what you have? How much more do you think you need to really be satisfied in life? If, if you were to receive an anonymous gift of $20,000 this afternoon, what would you do with it? I, I know that there are two or three things that immediately come to your mind. Would it be enough? Do you think you struggle with This is one of the hardest sins that there are to admit. Yes, I struggle with it. 
I mean, we'll say I, I struggle with lust. I struggle with anger. I struggle with bitterness. I struggle with unforgiveness. We'll say that, but none of us will say I struggle with wanting more all the time. I struggle with greed. I struggle with envy. We have such trouble admitting it. You know, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says the reason we have trouble, we struggle with admitting it, is because whatever socioeconomic bracket you're in, there's always somebody that's doing better than you. So whatever community you live in, you know, there, there may be a neighbor, but they drive nicer cars than you. Maybe they're sending their kids to a better school. They take nicer vacations. And so you can always imagine, well, I'm kind of modest. I mean, compared to them. You know, in America, a survey was taken, only 2% of Americans think they're upper class. Only 2%. Now, if you look at the whole world, wouldn't you really say the majority, at least of this room, are upper class? Let's just say it. <clears throat> Can I propose to you that it may be true you may struggle with envy? I mean, that, that's where it begins. It begins with admitting that, yes, I may have an issue with never being satisfied or content with the things that God gives me, whether it's home, spouse, money, retirement, whatever. Can we just begin there and admit to it? It's a hard thing to do. We see it in our kids. I mean, when the next generation iPhone comes out, now this thing's a piece of junk. It's a piece of junk. Now, I can say, well, listen, let me help you with that. So when I was your age, I didn't have an iPhone. I had a payphone. And a payphone was in a phone booth. Now, for those of you under 30, a phone booth is actually a square little box that you step into, and it has glass around it. And you put a dime. Now, you don't know what a dime is. A dime is actually a 10-cent piece. And you put that in a hole, and it drops down, and then you pick up this phone. You can't talk to it. There's no Siri in the box. And you don't get to press anything. You actually have to put your finger in a hole and drag this thing all the way to a little silver clip. You never liked the numbers that had 9, 8, or 7 because you had to keep doing this. The 1, 2, 3s were much easier. It wouldn't help them. They want what they want. Can you... Admit with me that we may struggle with wanting more. Always wanting a little bit more. And what that does is it leaves us unsatisfied with what you do have. And can you admit with me that it is dangerous for us? Thomas Carlyle, a Scottish philosopher, said, I can find a hundred people who can handle adversity. I have trouble finding one who can handle prosperity. And Jesus Christ himself said in Luke 12, 15, he says, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He's saying to us, our Lord, watch out, be careful. You know, because we tend to think that our life, our life is as valuable as the things that we have. And if we don't have valuable good things, then we don't have much of a life. And he's saying, don't fall into that trickery. Your life doesn't consist in, consist in what you have. If that would be the case, then what value would the pauper have? An image bearer of God, no less. And not only is it deceiving, it's destructive. It ruins our faith. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 13, 22, the seed that fell, that fell among the thorns, it grows up with the thorns, and the thorns choke it out. And what are the thorns? Jesus gives us the interpretation. He says it's the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. He says the same thing in Matthew 19. He says, you can take a massive camel and cram it through the eye of a needle easier than you can for a rich man.
to get into the kingdom of God. You want to think about that for just a minute. You want to think about that analogy he's given. I mean, it, there is a danger. Paul says to Timothy, in even harder language, he says in 1 Tim 6, he says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I know you're thinking of everybody else. He's speaking to, the, he's speaking to Timothy to tell it to the church. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is the value of the church here. We need one another. You remember that sermon I quoted from Jonathan Edwards a few weeks ago? You know, the true Christian life, it's a journey to heaven. We need to help each other. Uh, we need to be able to ask one another, hey, do you see in me ingratitude? Do you see in me envy? Ask your spouse, ask a friend in this church, ask your care group. You know, make yourself vulnerable, be transparent. Say, do you, do you hear me always complaining about what I don't have? Ask them. They may say, you know, they may back up, and if they back up, that's a sign that they're, they may say, yeah, I do. Or do I complain more than I give thanks? Just ask them that question. And those are indicators that you may be struggling with envy. You may need to confess, repent, ask God for grace. That's the, that's the road of foolishness. What is the road of wisdom that he gives to us? Well, look with me at 18 to 20. Now, I want you to see that 18 to 20 is smacked in the middle of this passage. This is what theologians call a chiasm. A chiasm is kind of, it says one thing, it, it, it speaks to a truth, the avoidance and the danger of riches, and then it has... It has the, the path of wisdom. And then, then in chapter 6, it kind of says in different language what he has already said in 5, 8 through 17. So it, it, those of you who are literary, it's A, B, A1. So, so, so the first half and the second half are saying the same thing. The meat in the middle is what we want to see. And the meat in the middle is 18 to 20. Here's what he says. He says, for behold... What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So he's saying, don't go the way of pursuing the love of wealth and money and comfort and community. Don't trust in that way. He says, I got another way for you. Here's the way of wisdom. This way of wisdom is to find enjoyment in the gifts of God. But, but let me break it down for you. Uh, first, notice he says, the days that God has given to you, the few days. You will have trouble in this life with greed if you don't recognize how brief your days are. God has given you days, and they are a few days as the preacher speaks. He's given you a few. If you don't understand the brevity of life, you will constantly go after the stuff that's shiny and pretty and plastic, just part of creation. If you don't understand the shortness of your life, it's easy to be duped into thinking that the things that you have can provide for you joy. So, so he has given you days, and they are few. They are few. 
had a funeral yesterday. Have a funeral on Saturday. The days are few. If you don't recognize that and you think you're just going to keep living forever, you're going to be susceptible. So the first thing he says, your days are few. Secondly, he says, find enjoyment in the things that you have. Look at it right there in 18. He says, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the toil with which you toil under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his life. God has given you gifts. He has. He's given you food. He's given you drink. And he's given you work. He's given you employment. We want to be thankful for that. He's given you relationships. He's given you a marriage and children. He's given you neighbors. We want to thank him for these things, that this is our lot. This doesn't mean we don't strive to improve all the things that he has given to us. No, we do. But we want to recognize that God has sovereignly distributed things to us, and we want to be grateful for them. They may not be A-plus things, but they are things that our Father in heaven thinks we need. And so we want to be grateful and thankful. It may not be the best car. Thank you, Lord. It starts. I'm thank- it gets me from A to B. It does what a car is supposed to do. Thank you, God, for that. We want to be thankful. And we also want to thirdly recognize that the joy that we have even comes from him. Look at 19. He says, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. God gives you the gift to enjoy it. Do you realize that? God is giving you the gift to enjoy. That's why he says the man doesn't remember his days. His heart is occupied with joy. Haven't you seen those saints? They can live in whatever circumstances, abundance or shortage, and they're just happy. Their lives go by quick. Or you see those with good marriages? You ask them, hey, how long does it feel? You've married for 34 years. How long does it feel? Three weeks? Feels like nothing. You know, or the people that love doing their jobs. The nine to five just goes like that. God, that is a gift of God. That is not us. We, that is a gift that God gives to us that we can have joy in these things. Now, here's the warning. If you don't seek the joy from God, if you try to seek it from the new car, the shiny car, you won't get it. He says this. Look with me in in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. And yet God doesn't give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. Grievous evil. In other words, what he's saying is the joy is not in the gift. The joy that we are to have comes from the giver of the gift because he loves us. This is the warning. This is, this is the threat. If we're not looking to God to give him thanks and receive his joy in what he's given to us, then these gifts become burdensome. It's like giving somebody a yacht but no engine or giving them a sailboat with no sails. It's a burden to people. It leaves them restless. But let me remind you why God might do that. God isn't just a tantalizer. He does it to draw us to himself so that we won't find rest in these things. So George Herbert was a poet, an English poet, lived in the 17th century, died in 1633, and he wrote this uh, a poem called The Pulley. Now, I can understand one poem out of ten. So I, I, I'm really bad with poems. But, but this one is fairly clear. He says this, he says, When God at first made man, having a glass of blessing standing by, he said, pour on him all we can. I'm going to be selecting words out of it. 
And so strength and beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, and pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay. He stopped. Perceiving that alone of all his treasure, rest in the bottom lay. He did not pour rest into that glass of blessings. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also upon my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me. But keep them with repining restlessness. Let them be rich and weary, that at least they may toss their head to my breast. In other words, there's a sort of restlessness that God allows to be part of everything he gives you so that you'll never find your rest in the gift, but in him. So what do we do? How are we going to take, what are we going to walk away from this with? Let let me just give you a couple takeaways. Number one would be, uh, repent if if you've been ungrateful. You repent of your grumbling. You know, if you tend to be more of a complainer than you are a thanker, repent of that. If you're constantly looking at things as what they're not rather than what they are, if you tend to be always bitter about what somebody else has and what you don't have, repent. Ask God to forgive you. You you may have a lousy job. You may hate your job. It may be truly difficult, legitimately hard. I want to remind you that even in adversity, God is yet doing something. You may thank him for that job. That's what you're going to hear next week in Ecclesiastes. Adversity can cultivate in us a greater godliness. So so you may be thanking him for what you're now criticizing him for. So let's thank him now. Because God always uses adversity to perfect his saints. So repent. Ask people to pray for you. Secondly, I would say ask God for joy. If you don't have joy in the car you drive, in the spouse you're married to, in the home that you live, in the things that you have, in the bank balances that are yours, ask him, say, God, give me joy. Give me a joy in you so that I can rest in you. My hope doesn't rest in these things anyways. Give me a happiness in these things. Father, I confess to you that I am ungrateful of heart. I need your joy in me for this. I know that this is my lot. You've given this to me, and I want to be grateful. He is a good father who only gives good gifts. And you may have a small amount of porridge to eat. Thank him for it. And then thirdly, thirdly, I would say uh, to strive to give thanks, to strive to give thanks. You know, notice what it says there in 18. He says, and find enjoyment in all the toil with which he toils. In other words, labor to look for the good. Look for it. So, so I was talking to Brian. Brian does this personally, but he also has folks that he meet with does this. It's a gratitude journal. You know, he just wants to record the things that he is grateful for. It doesn't mean things are going perfectly. There may be other things going wrong in your life at the same time, but at least we're going to look at, hey, what can we be grateful for? And what can we thank him for? And so we write these thing, he writes these things down, and he goes over it. It's a good way of being active in terms of giving thanks. And so he writes them down. Uh, do you know this is why the Sabbath was given, actually? You know, when you think about the Sabbath in the Old Testament, why did God give a Sabbath? Nobody, no nations around ever did a Sabbath. Who would dare take a day off from work? You had fields to tend to. You had barns to upkeep. You had work always to do. 
The reason God gave a Sabbath is so we could take a step back. The Sabbath wasn't to be a day of restriction. You can't do this and you can't do this and you can't. The Sabbath was to be a day of reflection that we think about God. God, you're giving me life. You're giving me breath. You're giving me drink to drink and food to eat. You're giving me employment in which I can use my gifts for the betterment of others. You're giving me all these things. And, and so it's a day of resting in all of his provision. But there's something else about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to remind you you're not what you do. So, you're, so you may be an executive and you may do super at it and you're well respected and you're well paid for it. But the Sabbath, you step away from work and you realize I'm not what I do. I'm a child of God. I'm made in the image of God. He is my creator. I am his creation and I will worship him. You are not what you do. You are who you are. And that is a child of God. Maybe you're running a great business and it's successful. And, and you find your identity in the actual business or, or, or maybe you're a student and, and you're, you're just straight A's the whole way. And I'm just a straight A student. You step away. You're not that. Those are vanity. It, it's, it, they're short run. They're going to be gone soon. The Sabbath reminds you you're not what you do, but you're a child of God. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, whatever you drink, whatever you eat, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do you know he pulled that right out of Ecclesiastes? Whatever you drink, that's what he says, find a German to eat and drink and the employment that you toil. Toil and do are the same. He's saying, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And, and then I'll just say two other things. One, steward your wealth well. Whatever wealth you have, steward it well. And by that I mean that you recall when he created Adam and Eve, he gave them everything in the earth, and, and he said, exercise dominion over it. You know, subdue it and, and, and exercise dominion over it. When we're stewarding God's gifts, we are not owning them. We're using them for their purposes. But when we become an owner, they become ours and we begin to consume them and they begin to dominate us. The way to move beyond that is to begin giving things away. Steward them. Be generous with others. Give to them. You, you know, the way you give is like a barometer. A barometer measures the pressure in the atmosphere. You know, it, it's a barometer of your faith. Do you believe that God has given this to you? Do you believe that God will continue to take care of you as a father? Paul says in 1 Timothy, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. We've heard that. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Here, the common language. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. So we want to we share. We want to we we give. It's a great way of breaking that tendency towards greed. And then last, play the long game. Play the long game. Uh, recognize that wealth is temporal. It's not going with you. The long game is to plan what it will be like when you're with God. So Jesus asked this question of his disciples. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? That is the way of foolishness. To gain the whole world and yet lose your soul. What's the other path? Well, the other path, he says in a few verses before, he says, calling to the crowd and his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So in these words, Jesus is showing us the other path, to follow him, to trust him for the sake of the... The gospel gives us the freedom. We don't need to be bound to determine value and hope from the things of this world. Uh, that, that following Christ through faith that leads us to God, and in God there is all joy. So we have these two roads before us. We have this road of foolishness, which is the pursuit of wealth and trust in riches and in things. And we have this other road to just find joy in the ordinary things that he has given to you. And to ask him for it if you don't have it. To find your joy in him.